This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a Dying Patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old, PhD, scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. 
It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous, and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body. Only eight hours after we told her that she had this incurable illness, and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her, and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind, and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why Without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner, and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, and her nieces whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now another powerful story from Horst Schultz, the German immigrant who was laughed at 
for wanting to work at a hotel. All of his friends and family thought it would be better to be an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor. But he went on to co-found the Rich Carlton. Horst is the author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise, and his Rich Carlton pursued and achieved excellence. They're the only hotel company to win the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award, and they won it twice, which only one other company in any industry has ever done. Take it away, Horst. We were voted number one hotel company in America. We only had six hotels at the time. And it was, what did we do? What did we do? We, we, we gave each other a high five and we drank some champagne and we said, number one in America. Yeah, right. And the next morning, it so happens, the next morning I had an unusual amount of guest complaints that came in by mail. And that evening I had dinner with a, with a very fine gentleman of Millican Carpet, Mr. Roger Millican all that gentleman at the time, and he said, congratulations, Horst, best hotel company in America. And I said, frankly, I read my mail this morning. Maybe we're the best, but we're the best of a lousy lot, but, but we're not good because we have a lot of complaint. He said, ah, I know. I'll, I'll, let me help you. You should study the Baltridge criteria and study what the Baltridge criteria is. Now, he set me up to meet in the Commerce Department with the head of the Baltridge criteria, it happens to be 11.30 in the morning, and at noon, the gentleman said, do you have time for lunch? I said, okay. He kept on explaining it, and I slowly started to understand what it meant. He used the word continuous improvement, and that excited me. Yes, I want to continuously improve. By the way, a few years later, I met him in a reception. He said, do you know why I invited you for lunch? I said, no. He said, because I felt sorry for you. You didn't understand a word I was telling you. And guess what? He was right. But during lunch, I started to understand continuous improvement. And we started to apply continuous improvement in the company. You may know we won the Polish Award twice, which nobody had. No service company even comes close to, even till today. Continuous improvement was part of it. Continuous improvement means you eliminate mistakes permanently. And if I eliminate a mistake permanently, that means it will never, ever happen again. I now improved my product and lowered my cost. Wow. Now, that is called not cost-cutting, but efficiency. So I started to learn that, and we started to apply that. An example was room service in Bucket Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta. I happened to run that hotel that was our first Ritz-Carlton. I managed it myself. I was in charge of operations. I had only one operation. It opened in January 1984. Now, the number one complaint in that hotel was slow room service. So what did I do at the time? I called the room service manager and said, what don't you understand? Be sure that never happens again. And we can just assume and I guarantee I'm right. He hired more Vedas, which created more complexity, which made other Vedas quit because they didn't make enough money anymore because they had to share their room service orders. And then we had to hire no ones and, and it was a total turnover. And guess what? Slow room service was still the number one complaint in the hotel. So what I, I kept on 
talking to the managers. Even the managers quit because I gave real pressure. But, uh, but that was before a new continuous improvement and abolished criteria. In the meantime, I was not in the hotel anymore. I was in the, we had a number of hotels. I was in the corporate office. Mind you, three or four years had gone by, and it was still the number one complaint. But now we, we worked on identifying root cause, continuous improvement. So what you do when you identify the root cause? In this case, we created a team with the people connected to the process, room service. That meant a room service order taker, a busboy, a waiter, and a cook. It had to be there, didn't it? So they followed the process. Order comes in, everything works fine, until they came to the elevator. And there was the problem. Sometimes in the morning when the rush comes in, everybody comes to work, the service elevator, and all the room service orders happen, everything happens right there. They had to wait up to 15 minutes for the room service elevator. So they became, they were sometimes 10 minutes late. The order was, we promised for a half an hour, it was 40 minutes. The, the, the gentleman was waiting, they had to go to a meeting. They were upset, the guest. So in this moment, who is connected to the process? The, the engineer, because there's elevator. So the chief engineer was invited into the process analysis. Why? They, they measured everything, they functioned well. In fact, they called in Otis, they measured everything, everything's functioned well. It should take three minutes round trip or less, whatever it was, not 15 minutes waiting in one place. So the room service waiter took a chair and sat in the elevator to see what happens. They come into the fourth floor and a houseman, a houseman supplied the maids with soaps, shampoos, linen and so on. Comes into the elevator, goes to the sixth floor, Blocks open the door, goes out, and comes back with, his, with an armful of linen. He goes to the 10th floor, and he's doing the same thing. Now he leaves. Now another houseman comes in and does the same thing. And he said, so who is involved now? And now housekeeping is involved in the process. Why is this happening? And the housekeeper said, well, it's very simple. We have a problem in a shortage of linen. Any hotel should have three sets. The hotel had only had two sets. One should be on the bed, one is being washed, and one is in traffic. Well, we had only two sets. Why? Well, laundry. Laundry gets involved now. Why don't we have only two sets of linen? And the laundry manager, Randy, I never forget him, who was there from before opening, I've opened the hotel with him. He said, we only have two sets, this is very simple, and we only replace what wears out on the two sets from the beginning. Well, why? Well, before we opened the hotel, we had a money problem, budget problem, and Mr. Schulze, which happens to be me, cut out one set of linen. Here, for years, we have complaints. I gave angry lessons to room service managers and food and beverage managers, yet it was my fault that we had slow room service. We changed, we added one set of linen, of course, immediately, 
and, and room service, slow room service complaints went down by over 70%. And, and, and we have many, 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 many examples of that. When, whenever we have a problem that repeats, we create teams, we call them tiger teams, that we used to, I'm still working in my mind, become tiger teams that done work to find the root cause. And by the way, the average is five steps away. That is where the root cause is. Not, and what do we attack? We attack the problem right there. Management attack, attacks the problem right there. Why do you do it? Why, why? It isn't there. It is five steps away. That's the average. That's statistically the average. Now, sometimes it's right there, but sometimes it lies eight steps away or whatever. So statistically, the average, the, the reason, the root cause, when if, if, we, if we just correct it right there, it will happen again and again and again and again until you eliminate the root cause. And that's, of course, we learned with the Baltus criteria. And finally, well, he'd learned his lesson. The guy who made these decisions was responsible for the problem. He'd been yelling at the wrong people, misidentifying the root cause, got at the root cause, got at the teams, got down to the, the step before the step before the step, the thing that led to the thing that led to the thing that led to the thing. And there you have it, a terrific storyteller, a terrific, terrific teacher in the end, and a diagnostician trying to figure out what the heck's really going on rather than just screaming and yelling at people. And it's a hard thing to do in our lives because things seem obvious, but they're not. You're listening to Horst Schultz, and he's the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton and author of Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a world of compromise. And by the way, his life story, our hour on horse, is one of our favorites. Deciding to get into the hotel business, growing up in a small town that didn't have a hotel, and with German parents who would have preferred that he be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. But a hotel guy? Ugh. And he did it anyway, and did it at the highest level possible. Go to Our American Network and hear that story. Again, it's one of our favorites and a classic immigrant story as well. Horst Schultz, his many stories here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and now a story from our own Monty Montgomery and Tim Harwood of Waterloo, Iowa's News Talk, 1540 KXELAM, one of our affiliates. Tim is the author of Ball Hawks, a sports history about the Waterloo Hawks, a professional basketball team. Here's Tim. During the era just after World War II, Waterloo had around 70,000 people, give or take. Waterloo is an industrial city. It's in the middle of the farm belt, but it was the first place where John Deere tractors were ever built. So a big manufacturing base that might have been more reminiscent of a Rust Belt city in Ohio or Indiana or Michigan. But this story isn't about John Deere tractors. It's about basketball. Waterloo Hawks basketball. 
The Hawks of the late 1940s and into the first years of the 1950s were unique because they were, of course, the only major league level team that Iowa has ever had going beyond Waterloo. It's uh, a unique circumstance for the entire state and Waterloo was in the right place at the right time. But to understand why Waterloo ever had a professional basketball team, we have to go back. Back to the Great Depression. During the Depression era, the best professional basketball players in the United States played for barnstorming teams. Uh, they'd travel around the country, they wouldn't have a set schedule, they'd pick up games as they could find them. And for the real stars of the era, they could make a, a very good living, in fact, a better living doing that than they could trying to play for one team that might play two or three games a week. By the latter years of the Depression into the mid to late 1930s, there was a, a major league that formed. It was called the National Basketball League eventually. And the name is something of a misnomer if you think of sports that are in the National Basketball Association or the National Football League or the big major leagues that we have today. Because the game took root in places like Fort Wayne, Indiana and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And there were a variety of reasons for that. They had industrial bases. Many of the teams of that era were owned by companies. And so the players who took those opportunities, not only in many cases uh, played basketball, but also worked for the company that might have owned the team or for another large business in the community. The National Basketball League was the preeminent league, though, through World War II. Coming out of the war years, the owners of major arenas in the East primarily, Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, even Chicago Stadium, more toward the Midwest, and others got together and looked at basketball at the pro level as something that could fill their buildings. They, in many cases, had success with college basketball games, particularly at Madison Square Garden during the 1930s and 40s, and thought that they could fill 25 to 30 or maybe more dates in their buildings that otherwise might be idle with professional basketball. They formed their own league, the Basketball Association of America, and for a few years post-World War II, the National Basketball League, the Basketball Association of America competed against each other. And the level of competition rose. It, it became challenging to try to get prestige. It became challenging to try to attract top players. There were bidding wars for players in some cases, and that got expensive because there wasn't nearly the money in professional basketball in the 1940s that there is today. It was a matter of determining who would control the future of professional basketball. They came up with a variety of ways to try to approach that situation, but in the off-season between the 1947-48 schedule and the 48-49 season, the Basketball Association of America hijacked four of the NBL's teams in their entirety. They talked the owners of the Minneapolis Lakers and the Fort Wayne Pistons and teams in Rochester, New York and Indianapolis, Indiana into jumping from one league to the other. So the National Basketball League in the summer of 1948 needed teams. They needed to fill out their roster of cities that would be able to make them a viable league. And they were able to add a few different 
clubs, including a team in Waterloo. The Hawks came into being because they had all the right elements in place. They had a hippodrome building on the National Cattle Congress fairgrounds that could seat seven to 8,000 people. They had a basketball floor that was in place that was brand new. And they had a reputation already for supporting sports teams. They also were in a very fortunate circumstance because a local who had moved on and become a wrestling promoter primarily in Des Moines had come into possession of the team's roster that had played in Toledo, the, the franchise uh, rights had gone to a former boxer and, and boxing promoter, wrestling promoter named Pinky George. Pinky had been a, a fighter in the 1920s and uh, ultimately had managed to make a career as a promoter through the Great Depression. He actually managed a couple of boxers who would fight Joe Lewis during their careers uh, as they made their way up to the top of the, the boxing world and uh, have a chance at the legendary champion of the era. He had originally intended to bring professional basketball to Des Moines, but the details just didn't come together. There wasn't the kind of support that he was hoping to have. It was challenging to find a venue to put the team in. And so because he was familiar with Waterloo, after having grown up but right next door in Cedar Falls, he decided that he'd put the Hawks in the Hippodrome. And uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for that immediately from uh, Waterloo fans who always, uh, I think, felt like the city had a lot to offer. They felt like they had uh, big shoulders for a small city, I think would be a fair way to describe it. And so when they had this opportunity, they jumped at it. But the situation was still untenable between the two leagues. The Basketball Association of America hadn't extinguished the NBL. The National Basketball League was still hanging on. And with bidding wars for players with the, the efforts that both entities were having to put forth to try to claim that they were the preeminent league. It finally became inevitable. And you can tell from the acronyms that the two leagues used, the NBL and the BAA would come together. They'd merge and become the NBA. They lost several teams in the process, but Waterloo was determined, the community and its uh, leaders were determined that they were going to keep a team in the city and have a chance to play against opponents from New York and Boston and Philadelphia and all of the places that you really do think of as major league destinations then and now. Waterloo had its place as they saw it, as the people of the time saw it, in major league basketball. You know, they had players who were all Americans. They had visiting teams coming in that had stars that people knew from their years in college and who had gone on into professional basketball. They had players from the World War II era who had served during the war prior to returning to college and then ultimately becoming professional basketball players. Arguably the biggest star for the Hawks initially was a player named Harry Boykoff. At one point, he actually held the scoring record for Madison Square Garden as a college player, a big guy, a, a lanky center, and uh, not particularly fleet of foot, but had a, a tremendous personality at the same time 
actually had played for a season in Toledo before he came to Waterloo. He chose the NBL because the team in Toledo offered to get him a job that would uh, keep him busy. He was an accounting major at St. John's and so wanted to put his business skills to use. Took an offer to go play in Toledo because they could promise him a job during the offseason that uh, would supplement his basketball income. Another All-American player uh, was from the University of Tennessee's named Dick Meehan, and he was the biggest scoring star for the Waterloo Hawks during their season in 1948-49 when they were in the National Basketball League. He was among the top scorers in the league that season. Meehan actually was, uh, I believe, in the Air Force. At that point, it would have been the Army Air Corps during World War II. It was quite a bit different in that era. Today, we think of athletes, regardless of their sport, training year-round, and it's a full-time job to be an athlete in that era, the 1940s and into the 1950s. Players would arrive at the start of the season, and uh, they'd have a couple of weeks, and that would be when they would be getting in shape. And uh, during the off-season, there wasn't a tremendous amount of training. There weren't a lot of rules regarding what players could do with their time. There were some players actually in the era, and you don't see this at the NBA level today that I can think of in any sense, where uh, there were players that in some cases would play professional sports. They might be uh, baseball players in the summertime, play basketball in the winter. So when they would arrive in the fall, they would uh, train for a few weeks. They'd play a few preseason games uh, strung together and uh, and dive right into the schedule after that. It's interesting that a lot of players had off-season jobs. Typical average player's contract as a professional basketball athlete in the 40s and 50s might have been in the range of $4,500 a year, 5000 Some were less, some were more. Although that was a reasonably good amount of money to be making for six months, for many players who were college-educated, who had aspirations to be executives or to have careers that uh, would be fitting for their college degrees, they were working some other job in the off-season on the assumption that they were only going to be professional basketball players for a few years. and They'd have a whole lifetime ahead of them where they would need to earn an income. Waterloo's first NBA game was actually against the New York Knicks in October of 1949. And it was a tremendous way to start Waterloo's time in this new league after being what they considered a a major league basketball city for one year. Now to begin the second season of major league professional basketball, the Hawks were hosting the New York Knicks. It was Waterloo in Northeast Iowa literally over a thousand miles away hosting a team that had come in on their own private rail car from New York and uh, that was the epitome it was the team from New York and that's all that mattered and so Waterloo on opening night in 1949-50 hosted the the Knicks and uh, hung with them but New York took that game by the final of 68-60 to just a few days later The Hawks beat the Boston Celtics four days after hosting the New York Knicks and beat them pretty soundly, 80-66. And uh, that was the first win for Waterloo against an opponent in the National Basketball Association. 
in a lot of ways, that's the highlight of the Hawks story. But teams like the Knicks and the Philadelphia Warriors, Boston Celtics, weren't particularly excited about putting Waterloo Hawks on their marquee. And so they found some creative ways to get around hosting home games against Waterloo. They would play double headers where the that say the team in Philadelphia might play the team from Baltimore and the undercard game, the early game was New York versus Waterloo and that would be in Philadelphia. And then Waterloo would be in New York for example and might play Baltimore or Philadelphia while the Knicks played a more prestigious opponent, at least a more prestige in terms of the city that they came from. So the Hawks did play in Madison Square Garden just before Christmas in 1949, but they didn't play the Knicks. They played the Philadelphia Warriors instead, and the Knicks had a different opponent that night. But they they did end up seeing just about all of the major venues of the era that were hosting professional basketball, and uh, just wasn't against the team that you might have expected on the opposite bench. In the 1948-49 season, the Hawks were competitive. They were very successful early on, and uh, you could say that they they ran out of gas. You could argue that they were either the sixth or the seventh best team in the nine-team National Basketball League. During that season and into the start of the 1949-1950 NBA season, uh, the Hawks were a slower, more methodical team. But they weren't as athletic as some of the opponents that they faced. And that was probably their downfall. They also dealt with some injuries, particularly in the 1948-49 season that slowed them down when things appeared to otherwise be going along pretty well. And the Hawks finished near the bottom of their division, fifth out of six teams in 1949-50. In the spring of 1950, there was a sentiment among the large cities, among the owners, among the media, that a city like New York and a city like Waterloo or Sheboygan, Wisconsin, shouldn't be in the same league. They, they weren't on par as far as uh, some of the owners saw it and as far as many of the columnists for the major papers saw it. So the National Basketball Association worked through a couple of ideas that they thought might push some of the smaller city teams out of the NBA. They, uh, for example, had to put up a $50,000 performance bond where if the team couldn't operate, ran out of money, couldn't pay its players, couldn't make its road trips, and failed to be a functioning entity within the NBA, that $50,000 bond would be forfeited. It had to be backed by an insurance company or a bank. And well, the Hawks and the Sheboygan Redskins were able to manage that because they had tremendous community support in both cases. And so they went to the league meetings in April of 1950, and ultimately the rest of the league voted to exclude Waterloo, Sheboygan, and Denver from the scheduling process. That was really the end for Major League Professional Basketball in Waterloo. I'd like to read something from the local paper, the Waterloo Courier. This was an article from just a few years after Waterloo had had a team in the NBA. Recapping the era, uh, the article says, 
The fortunes of pro basketball fluctuated, and even when crowds were good, there was one difficulty or another, sometimes a losing season, sometimes mounting expenses, and sometimes strife within a league itself. Waterloo pro basketball fans always have insisted that the city would be in the NBA today if the big city members had not forced out smaller cities. I think that captures the sentiment of Waterloo in the early 1950s and the disappointment that many people felt that they'd had something and it had been taken away from them. And in many ways, that's why the story of the Waterloo Hawks isn't really well known today, even in Waterloo itself, because at the time, the people who had made it happen, who had made basketball viable in Waterloo at the highest level of pro basketball at the time, I think really felt a disappointment. It wasn't something that they wanted to brag about. We look at it today as being a major accomplishment for a city of 70 or 80,000 people to have a team playing against opponents from New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And you've been listening to Tim Harwood of Waterloo, Iowa's News Talk 1540, KXELAM, one of our affiliates. Tim is the author of Ball Hawks, a sports history book about the Waterloo Hawks. And they, again, were a professional basketball team, a part of the NBA for a very brief time. And, of course, they, Waterloo, Waterloo, Sheboygan, and Denver, a very small town at the time, were all pushed out of the NBA. What a story about a time and place that players had part-time jobs, actually almost full-time jobs, two jobs, ball player half the year, an accountant or whatever, the other half. My dad had played college basketball, was friends with Tommy Heinsohn, who played on the Boston Celtics for half the year and drove trucks. The other half would one day come to coach the Boston Celtics when the league professionalized and changed. And I sometimes wonder about Green Bay, because this small city, well, the NFL kept them, and they have a powerhouse of a team. And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for producing this piece, Tim Harwood's story of the Waterloo Hawks, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, our own Alex Cortez brings us the wild adventure story of a woman named Carrie Morgridge. Here's Carrie. I grew up poor, but I grew up at the beach in Santa Barbara. So you know what's free? Going to the beach every day. So on the weekends, my parents played horseshoes with their friends and I learned how to body surf. I learned how to swim in the Pacific Ocean. And this was back in the day when the oil rigs weren't regulated. 
So I'd come home totally tarred out. I had tar all over my body. And my mom, young mom, used paint thinner on my skin to get the tar off because we didn't know any better. <laughs> so my love immediately was from my parents always wanting to be outdoorsy. In 2015, I had back surgery, and I'm a girl who's done nine Ironman. When I had back surgery, I couldn't live that life anymore. So my appetite didn't seem to go away, because when you're an active athlete like me, you can eat a lot <laughs> and not really worry about it. So my appetite didn't go away, and I had just put on some weight, and my muscles had changed. So I asked my husband if I could go to fat camp, and John said, give me 24 hours. And so John discovered how to bike across the country, going north to south on a mountain bike, crossing the Continental Divide 36 times and climbing almost 200,000 vertical. 200,000 vertical is like hiking Mount Everest seven times. I was up for the challenge. Called the Great Mountain Divide Bike Route, it's a 3,083.8 mile off-road bike route between Banff, Canada and Antelope Wells, New Mexico that's along the Continental Divide. The divide in the Rocky Mountains where water starts to flow west to the Pacific Ocean and starts to flow east to the Atlantic. A route that these 50-somethings, Carrie and John, hope to conquer. On day one, we had mapped out 60 miles, and it didn't sound that rough. We didn't know quite know how to read the elevation maps quite yet. John will tell you, oh, I had it, and I knew, I just didn't want to tell you. <laughs> but we were literally in the Canadian mountain Rockies, you know, going up, going down, going up, going down. So, you know, you go up at three miles an hour, and you go down, obviously not super fast, because I have 95 pounds of gear on me. So it's not like you can whiz down on a typical mountain bike ride. It was pouring rain the second part of the day. When we did get to that lodge, I mean, I was soaked to the bone. And I'm sure when they saw us come in, they're like, oh, hell no. No, no, not, not a biker. Because she didn't even have to look at her computer and she said, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry, we're full. You're going to have to get your wet out of my building. <laughs> so the first night we camped. And camping means a whole hour of setup after an already long day. It's like when you run the New York City Marathon, you actually have to walk a full hour to get back and get out of the bins and the cages that they put you in to find your people to get back to your hotel room. It takes literally about an hour. And so you know, here you run a three, four, or five hour race and then tack on another hour to walk all the way back to your hotel. That's what it was like every day. And I was on the Great Divide mountain bike route like 10, 12 hours a day. We look back on that day also as a sign. It would have changed the whole trip. Thank God we didn't get in to that awesome place because our mindset and our mind growth and our growth together, it bonded us right from day one. It, it changed us. And I think that's why camping is so important to do with your children. I can't stress enough 
how important camping is. Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors of all time, and it might be in one of his books. What did Navy SEALs have in common? And he went through everything, like was it their birth date? Was it a uh, uh, stable family? What gave him the tenacity? And he came back, the last question that I would have never thought to have asked this was camping. So all of our Navy SEALs, the one thing they have in common is they grew up camping. Pretty interesting statistic, right? I think camping gets you out of your comfort zone. You have to work, you have to chop wood and you have to build your fire and you know, you may not have all the luxuries. And then also, you know that you can sustain yourself. You know that you have something in you to make it through life, make it through the day, make it through the night on your own. I think there's something really powerful about that. It only took us four days to bike through Canada, and then we were on to the very first American city is called Eureka, Montana. It's kind of where the Border Patrol is. It's about 110 degrees that day, and we are about to leave Canada, and a, a gentleman stops us along our way. So where are you from? And John and I say, oh, we're from the US, and he's like, I gotta warn you, when you get over to that side, watch out, there's a bunch of rednecks who live in Eureka, they have guns. You should be careful. Oh, and they're Republican rednecks with guns. <laughs> and, you know, you're not knowing who you're talking to, so we don't wanna cause a scuff, and you just kinda take it. And as we're leaving, John's like, I think I'm a redneck, I just don't have a gun. <laughs> because our necks had gotten sunburnt. We were totally rednecks. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll continue with Carrie Morgridge's adventure story. And my goodness, 3,083 miles of off-road biking. And by the way, not anywhere, the Continental Divide. I couldn't handle it in flatland on 70-degree weather with a nice breeze. When we come back... More Carrie Mortgage's epic adventure here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and Carrie Morgridge's story of biking the Great Mountain Divide bike route, a 3,000 plus mile off-road bike route that's along the Continental Divide. Carrie and her husband John are now leaving Canada and they're about to enter the United States. So this was really fun too. So John and I have to stand in the Canadian auto line to get through our border patrol. And so as we're doing that, John the whole time had carried his American flag. But in honor of being in Canada, he did not put on his American flag, which I really respect. He said he really wanted to wait till he got to America. So as we were waiting in the automobile line, he whipped out his American flag 
and he rode the rest of the Great Divide route with his American flag on the front of his bicycle, always waving. As we passed into Eureka, um, it changed because of the patriotism just on the other side of the border. There was no town. It was on a backcountry fire road or a backcountry road that was not paved. And big farms with either sheep or cattle, always a few horses, always a few dogs, always a trampoline, either in the front yard or the backyard, always a broken down car, broken down tractor, but then always American painted mailbox, always a flagpole, and then always, you know, the pallets, those were painted symbolizing a flag. Those were abundant as we were riding down the route. And I thought, how awesome is that? Because there's about a thousand people a year that do the Great Divide mountain bike route. And many of them are foreigners. So coming into America from Canada, you're leaving the beauty of Canada. Canada, the Canadian Rockies are spectacular. But you're also coming into America just filled with patriotism, filled with kind people. So the first few days was, okay, we did 60 miles the next day. Okay, well, maybe we can do 65 miles. Okay, maybe we could do 70 miles. We just kept pushing ourselves harder and harder. And that's finally when I got to the breaking point by about the sixth day, I was like, is this fun? Are you kidding me? And I almost started to cry because I was so not having fun anymore. I was pretty broken. And John recognized that I just wasn't gonna make it. And his number one goal was to make it. So he did a reset and said, okay, we wanna finish it. And the only way to finish it is to kind of slow our jets down a little bit and not be in this competitive racing mode, but to be in it for the long haul. And it was, he sacrificed his personal goals. Maybe it was to finish in 40 days. So he reset his goals for me. And that was one of the acts of kindness that I talk about that being unplugged, I started to realize all the things that John does for me on a daily basis. I'm gonna deviate a little bit because this is what happened to Bridget last night. So my girlfriend, Dr. Bridget Coughlin, she is CEO of the Shed Aquarium. She is one of my closest friends. I just love her to death. Last night when she arrived, I said, get on your swimsuit, we're gonna go swimming. And we went swimming in the Atlantic Ocean and it took about an hour, you know, to suit up and ride our bicycles over and go swimming. When we got out, she said, thank you. She's like, you just gave me a reset. I went from doing all this to-dos and gotta get back to you and all these follow-ups to putting everything in perspective of what, what do I need to do to move my organization forward. And if you can just find that in your life and have simple little resets now and again, I think we would all be better because you and I live a very fast-paced life. And so really having those reset moments that can happen with a simple swim or a simple beach walk or a simple, you know, so always, always, always since the Great Divide mountain bike route, take time for yourself. And on day 13, their day would end in a town called Lima, Montana at an ExxonMobil gas station where time sought to stop. So, the day that we hit Exxon Mobil, John bonked. 
And what happened was um, we, sh we should have stopped and go for a swim and a reset in one of the tide pools, but we didn't because it was a nice downhill. And we regretted it. And we talked about it. We talked about, okay, should we bike back? And every time we got a mile further down, <laughs> we wanted to go two miles back up. Um, we got onto the paved freeway and it was incredibly hot and we didn't do the swim and we were dying of thirst and John refused to drink his hot water. So we had run out of cold water and all we had left was hot water. So we were sipping on hot water for hydration, which is absolutely miserable when it's 110 degrees outside and there's no shade and there's no tree anywhere. So we pull into this Exxon Mobil and we immediately go to the ice box where there are Gatorades. And John and I honestly down two Gatorades right before we even make the counter. Observing everything, John is seeing an old chair. And he said, I know that chair has a story. And so as we go to check out and we're buying all kinds of silly food that we can possibly fill our bodies with, John asks, the gentleman at the counter, he said, there has to be a story to this chair. And he said, thank you for asking. That was my father's chair. And as my dad got older, he would come sit with me every day in the ExxonMobil. And then he said, you know, dad passed six months ago and I can't, I can't move his chair. It's like if I remove him, I'm removing my father. So it's his way of seeing his dad every day. But I think what the spirit of the trail does for you is you take that extra minute to figure out what, what is that chair's story. And it, and it was really sentimental and really touching. And John and I almost left in tears because we could feel the love of how much he loved his dad and we could visualize the two of them there. He was not going to remove that chair, nor should he. We were going through Wyoming. They were laying high fiber all the way through Wyoming. So back roads of nowhere. If you, once you start to bike across the country, or even if you think about it in your car, if you drive across the country, you're out of a big city in 30 minutes. And then you're, you're back into wilderness and wildlife and just nature. And this part of Wyoming, it had a beautiful stream, but not a lot of trees. So it was pretty darn hot. And our hotel room was occupied, but not being paid for by the fiber optics company that was hiring the contractors to lay the fiber. And so they had two pizzas going in our kitchen when we pulled in. And there was other things there. We didn't, we didn't want to touch it. We just wanted a bed and a cold shower and some air conditioning. That's all, that's all we wanted. So we got to see them at the end of the night, at the end of the shift. So imagine coming back, working with the same guys all day long in hot, sweaty, you know, hard, con I would call those hard conditions. It, it was brutally hot. And then imagine going to a small hotel, same guys, having a pizza and a soda pop, and then calling it a night because it's a physically laborious job. And when we were biking the next day, we saw and watched how hard these contractors were working, but how our country is based 
on their hard work, right? That fiber optics is going to fuel, a, a, connect a school. Those fiber optics are going to change possibly the Exxon, maybe how they bank or transfer money or something. So what those gentlemen were doing out there is directly impacting our country. And we could feel it and see it. And so we were really great. We had a lot of gratitude. So I'm really, really grateful for all of our people in our country that don't sit behind a desk, that do use their hands, that do drive a truck. It's all important. And these workers are away from their families. For the whole summer, because that was a summer job. I'm sure they have to become part family. You know, you spend that much time with somebody and you just kind of become part family. Listening to Carrie talk about that moment, that spirit of travel and taking that extra minute. She's so right, there are chairs everywhere if you just take the time. And you get off, well, if you get off the main highways and get on the blue highways, I've traveled across this great country six times and always as often as possible, not on the major interstates. And it has been such a blessing. And for all those who travel outside the country but haven't really seen their own, I'd urge everyone to try it. Take that extra week, couple of weeks or that extra week and get off the road. Stay away from the big cities. They're great, but it's what's in between the big cities and the, and the big suburban towns that often is most interesting about this country. When we come back, more of Carrie Mordridge's story a terrific adventure story here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories in the final portion of Carrie Mortgage's adventure story of biking the Great Mountain Divide bike route, a 3,000-plus mile off-road route that's along the Continental Divide. Let's return to Carrie. I don't want to talk about that part. Really? Yeah. I just had asked Carrie about their friend Mark joining them on the trail. Okay, I'll tell you the positive things. Um... We asked a ton of our athletic friends to join us, not one taker, except for our Floridian friend, who we found out, of course, had asthma. So he already knew he possibly couldn't make it because of his childhood onset asthma. So when we hooked up with Mark, the first thing we did was a huge prayer circle ring together. And it was a beautiful prayer. Mark asked God to show mercy on him as he tests his mind, spirit, and body. That was a common prayer every day for me. (laughs) (laughs) And again, I didn't know about his asthma until we climbed a really big hill and Mark said, I can't breathe. And I'm like, I just thought he was kind of pulling my leg or like, you know, a lot of us can over-exaggerate sometimes, so I wasn't sure which one was happening. And then he's like, no, seriously, I can't, I can't breathe. And I'm like, oh, we're in trouble. So husband John had biked ahead to get him more cold soda and hoping that some ice and some things would help. But he ended up in the ER and his doctor said, listen, if you're feeling this chest pain and you can't go any further, 
you do need to stop. And so um, in Breckenridge, we started to climb and Breckenridge uh, has some of the tallest peaks in the state of Colorado. And so we were about to head over towards one of the highest peaks on the Great Divide mountain bike route. And Mark's lungs just wouldn't let him get there. And he, you know, prayed to God and he asked his family for, you know, if they could hang in there for him. And um, Jody, his wife, immediately flew out. And they ended up having a great weekend and spending a beautiful weekend in Breckenridge and, and was honestly looking at real estate, like loved it so much. So he got the meds he needed to from the right doctor at the right place at the right time. And he gave us his blessing to go on. So that morning we prayed and said, God's going to guide us. And Mark said, I just want you to know I'm not holding you back. If I can't make it, you have to go on. And that was our pact with each other. Carrie wrote in the spirit of the trail, the sprint is over. Mark is choosing the marathon of life for his wife and children. John had always been worried about my safety and especially the unknown of getting to New Mexico and closer to the Mexican border. So we haven't spent much time on the Mexican border. So I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. So. When we got out of the city and we were crossing, there's an underpass of Highway 10. And most people have driven Highway 10 some part in their life, you know, the southernmost route east to west. There's a freeway that you can actually mountain bike underneath that freeway. And we ended up at a trading post. And at the trading post, we walked in and the women were phenomenal. So one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is how good people are. And in, this, in our experience, every human we encountered was unbelievably supportive and unbelievably kind. We walk in and the women see us walk in in our bike gear and they're like, welcome to the trading post. The bathrooms are in the back. <laughs> they knew what we wanted. So we immediately went to the bathroom. Then again, this is New Mexico and it's the middle, it's in September. So it is super hot, like unbelievably hot. It's between 95 and 100 degrees. So we are in dire need of ice and a cold Gatorade. When we get to the counter, I told the women our concern about where we, where we should stay. And they're like, oh, our friend Jim at the community center will open it up for you for a small donation. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. So John's like, call him, call him, call him, call him, call him. John kept chomping at the bit, like, you know, call that guy, call that guy. And I'm like, I'm going to have my sandwich. Just chill. We're going to be fine. He was like, no, no, no. You need to call him. You need to call him. You need to call him. So finally I'm like, fine, I'll call the guy. So I call the guy and he's like, of course I'll open it up for you. And John just has a total meltdown. He's crying. I didn't realize the stress he had carried for the 3,000 miles about our safety. We're only 40 miles from finishing. We're only 40 miles from the Mexican border. And John was that concerned about my safety. And it was just such a huge relief. And so right then and there, another act of kindness miraculously happened for us. And a gentleman who we don't know went out of his way to go into town 
and open up the community center so John and I would have a safe place to sleep. So sometimes I can be naive, call it whatever you want. But when we got to the Mexican border, I wanted my passport stamped. I had carried my passport all the way from Canada, all the way down. So Obama had built this incredible like $25 million passport, fancy United States building, totally gussied up. We kind of go through that area and we enter Mexico and there are two Hispanic men with armed machine guns with a folding table, two broken white lounge chairs, and a covered roof, a uh, little tarp. And they looked at us like, you're kidding, right? And he just said, how far are you going? I'm like, oh, this is it. And he's kind of like, go back to the US. <laughs> go, go away. <laughs> you're annoying. So we, so we literally enter Mexico and they tell us to go home, <laughs> so we do. And we have our bikes and we're coming back into the US Border Patrol. Here's this $20 million fancy building. And I stop and wait and I wait and I wait. And finally I get off my bike and I go like bang on the window like, hello, hello. <laughs> and he's like, may I help you? And I'm like, yeah, we're entering the United States. So you wanna see my passport? And he said, ma'am, that's for airports. We're border patrol. How long have you been in Mexico? And I said, oh, about five minutes. And he, he just looked at me like, oh my God, you are wasting my time. You are such a moron. <laughs> we had never been so in love in our 25 years of marriage as we were as finishing this race. And it was just amazing. And what a terrific story and what a storyteller. And you've been listening to Carrie Morgridge's story of biking the Great Mountain Divide bike route. And we're talking about 3,000 plus miles. And my goodness, not ordinary terrain. I remember not too long ago going to a, to a wedding. I was best man at a friend's wedding and of all places, Aspen. And my wife and I decided to drive up over the pass. I was exhausted driving over the big pass. It was so scary being up that high, so I can't imagine biking it. Take an adventure like this with your family. She's so right about camping or just taking a big, long road trip with the family. I remember mine with my dad visiting Civil War battlefields all over the country, leaving from New Jersey, Gettysburg, Shiloh, and of course, all the way down to Vicksburg in the end with just a map and some time and all kinds of things happening in between. Good, some bad, couple of arguments, a lot of bonding. It's never perfect, but my goodness, it's worth it. And take an epic road trip if you can. Send stories of your best road trips, by the way. OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, Carrie's terrific adventure book, The Spirit of the Trail, is available at Amazon. That's The Spirit of the Trail. Carrie Mortgage's story, in a way, her husband John's too, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories from all walks of life here on this show, as you know. Some of the stories are inspiring, we hope. Some are pretty tough. And some, like this one, well, they're a mixture of both. Here's retired Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch speaking frankly to some U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen about what happened to him after being wounded in action. My life was being a Navy SEAL. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't realize the extent of my commitment to it until afterwards when I could no longer do it. And uh, the way my career, uh, as I call it, ended um, was not the easiest way to go. It really, really uh, was difficult. It was a hostage rescue mission. We were trying to rescue that young kid, uh, Bo Bergdahl, that's been in the news a bit. Couldn't see the guys. I knew there were people out there. Uh, in a hostage rescue mission, you can't just shoot people. <laughs> you got to see who's who in the zoo. It's at night. Uh, the visibility wasn't very good. And we used the dog to find those guys. And the dog found them. And the only w- way I knew that they were hostile was I saw one guy shoot the dog in the head. Um, at that point, I could see with the muzzle flash that he was armed, so I started uh, filling him in, as it were, shooting him. And his buddy panicked, like they always do, uh, because they suck. And he sprayed, and uh, thank God he didn't hit the other two guys that were with me. Um, but he hit me, and he didn't have the decency to hit me in the body armor that I had to wear all the time. So blew my femur out of the back of my leg, tossed me in the air, and I'm in the air, and I'm thinking, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream. Hit the ground. What did I do? It hurt so bad. And I felt bad for years. I felt like such a weak individual for screaming. But, man, it was powerful. At that point, I transitioned. I didn't know it, but I became an observer, uh, a witness, as it were, to my crew and their spirit and their strength. Guys had to finish the gunfight. I couldn't put my tourniquet on myself because when I tried to do it, it my femur would twist and I would scream some more, which is bad. I wasn't really useless. I was actually a hazard. Because if you got a guy that's screaming around you, they just got to throw grenades in the direction of that guy, right? It was bad. I didn't want to scream anymore. So I didn't put my tourniquet on until the gunfight was over. Two uh, people who had been to an advanced army medic school heard me on the radio or heard on the radio that I'd been hit. And they came from different parts of the target uh, over open ground, having to shoot people to get to me. And they went to work on me and saved me. I got flown out, medevaced. Um, Sat there with the dog at my feet when the helicopter flew us out. Um, And this is the first time where I'm in the company of other people who had gotten hurt. And I realized as I'm laying there that I'm not hurt that bad. That there were people on that plane being medevaced with me that were severely hurt. People that didn't look like humans anymore. They were wrapped up in gauze and they had hoses running in and out. These little things were etched on my hard drive. These are things that I had to deal with later. One night, I stuck a gun in my mouth after I'd gotten treatment to get my leg healed up. I stuck the gun in my mouth in front of my wife, which is pathetic. I know how to use a gun. If I wanted to die, I'd be dead, right? It was a cry for help. I had become addicted to the pain meds, and I was washing them down with Stoli's vodka, just a tip. Don't do that. It's not a good way to go. Put a gun in my mouth in front of my wife. My wife was scared to death. She got the gun away from me. She immediately called my unit. My unit said, call the police. We can't get there quick enough. 
She called the police, told them exactly who I was in the world and what I'd been doing for the majority of my life, and that I was going nuts. And those guys came to my house. They knew who I was. They knew I had guns and knives. Uh, they had every right to at least give me a good tasing or a beating, you know. They de-escalated the situation. They kept me calm uh, until my crew got there. My crew put me in a car, took me to the Naval Hospital, uh, where I agreed to go to the fifth floor, which is the psych ward. I was humiliated. Um, I needed the help, but I didn't know how to get it. I had alienated myself and pushed myself away from people. So there I am, sitting in the hospital in my purple pajamas with a towel this big so I don't hang myself. And I'm embarrassed. I was a team leader on a SEAL team. I had over 150 direct action combat missions. I'd been in a lot of gunfights. I was proud of what I had done. And now I'm sitting in the psych ward with kids working there that are just have been in the Navy a year or two that are like babysitting me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, my crew came to see me. And I was embarrassed and I didn't want them to come see me. I never once realized how fortunate I was to that point in my life. Um, quick tip, though. If you're ever in the psych ward, and God, I hope you'd ever have to go there. Uh, don't do this. So my buddies came to see me. I'm a, I'm a big skydiver. They bring these skydiving magazines in, and they hand them to me across the table. One of the young uh, people that worked in the psych ward came over and said, Sir, we've got to take those magazines from you. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, i got staples in them. And you could hurt people with those staples. And I said, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this room, you're one that's crazy. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Never do that. Do not threaten the staff in the psych ward. Huh? You'll probably get a good shot, and you're going to stay there like I did a few extra days. So uh, while I sat there, my buddies had gone to work um, trying to figure out what they were going to do to me. People at my unit, uh, very senior people, uh, were involved in my personal little saga. And it wasn't like their bandwidth wasn't full of other things, like other combat missions and other things going on with other people in the unit. But they showed me their value. I could not deny that they valued me because they committed so much to making sure that I got better. The same guy who saved my life in combat, he flew me, rented a car, and drove me to this psych hospital. See, you get a lot of medals in gunfights when you save people's lives. You don't get any medals for driving your buddy to the psych hospital. That's a true commitment. Why would he do that? Because he cared about me. I had value, right? So I'm checking in to the hospital, and they're going through my bag like I'm a felon. I'm offended by this because I'm a tough guy, Navy SEAL commando. And I look at my buddy, and I said, hey, man, I'm not doing this. I'm running. There's no way. He said, well, look, first of all, you can't run anymore. <laughs> what a jerk, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And secondly... You need to do this. You need to do this for yourself and for your family and for the rest of us that are coming down the road. And he was right. When somebody saves your life, you owe them a couple things. One, you can't disrespect them. And two, you can't make the efforts that they extended on your behalf a waste. So at that point, I realized that I was going into this hospital. It was a great thing for me. I spent a lot of time in that hospital. I think it was close to uh, four and a half months. And why it was great for me was that I realized that you don't have to be in combat to have traumatic things happen. This was the turning point for me, one of the major ones. I'm in a group session. There are professional people from the civilian world in this group session with me. And they'd all been through tough stuff. 
And we're going around, we're talking about these things, and we get to a young woman, she's probably 30 years of age. And she said, when I was 11 years old, two of my uncles raped me in front of my father on Christmas Eve. What do I say to that? I've got problems. I got shot in the leg on a mission I volunteered for with a group of people that I love, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And this young woman is in here brawling with this. What do you think she thinks every year at Christmas Eve? That was a turning point for me. Life's combat, man. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to have things happen to you that are difficult. Your people don't have to be combat people to have things happen to them that are going to make them go nuts. So I graduate from this uh, little hospital, and I go home, uh, and I continue to get treatment, seek a counselor. I get retired from the service. Um, point with all that is that I didn't want help. I didn't want people to think I was weak. I didn't want people to know that I was suffering. I didn't want to suffer. And for a long time, I wished I'd have died that night. Because, you know, nobody hates dead people, right? You don't snore. You don't cause problems. They name a chow hall after you. It's all cool, right? I didn't know what I was going to be anymore. My buddies injected themselves into my life over and over, and they, they forced me to know that I was valued. Sometimes the word stigma is used. You know, there's a stigma with getting involved in people's lives. I call it cowardice. I watched my buddies, same guys who saved me in a gunfight overseas, I watched them save me again. They pushed through it. They weren't embarrassed. They knew that I needed help. It was that simple. And they were going to patch me up again. So I hope, if you guys are ever in the position where you see that somebody's having a difficult time, you realize that maybe being embarrassed is the biggest risk if you confront them about it but it's probably worth it. And what a story, and thanks to Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch for sharing that story. And there's a stigma that comes along with mental illness and with soldiers. Oh, my goodness, how many times do you say the word, I was embarrassed? I was a team leader, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward. I was embarrassed, he said. Never once did I realize how fortunate I was. Father, I love the line, you don't get any medals driving your buddy to the psych ward. And it's so true. My life was being a Navy SEAL. The way my career ended, it was really difficult. And so many men who fight for us, right, who fight for all of us, that's the case. He came back, and my goodness, did he have troubles adjusting. And it took that one girl's story to turn everything around having to deal with being raped by uncles in front of her father. And he thought, what the heck am I complaining about? How lucky I am. I did something I volunteered for, surrounded by people I loved. And my goodness, having those good people around him to help him through this difficult time. And now he's got a mission. He has a nonprofit that has a lot to do with helping prepare working dogs for life in the working world. Navy SEAL Senior Chief Jimmy Hatch's story here on Our American Stories. 